Hello, listeners. I hope you enjoyed that beautiful strawberry supermoon last night. This is Independent Shakespeare Company Ensemble member and Artistic Associate for Social Justice, Karen E. Rose Mekertichan. This quarter's June Community Action Update features ISC board member Ebony Murphy-Root and the one and only Miss Christina Wong. We begin today's episode with a speech from Act 2, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, performed by beloved ISC ensemble member and our very own Titania, Aisha Kapia. But with thy brawls thou hath disturbed our sport. Therefore the winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs which, falling in the land, have every pelting river made so proud that they have overborne their continents. The ox hath therefore stretched his yoke in vain, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and crows are fatted with a murian flock. The nine men's morris is filled up with mud, and the quaint mazes in the wanton green, for lack of tread, are undistinguishable. The human mortals want their winter cheer. No night is now with him or Carol blessed. Therefore the moon, the governess of floods, pale in her anger, washes all the air that rheumatic diseases do abound. And thorough this distemperature we see the seasons alter, hoary-headed frosts, far in the fresh lap of the crimson rose. And on old Hyam's thin and icy crown, an odorous chaplet of sweet summer buds is, as in mockery, set the spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter change, their wonted liveries and the mazed world by their increase knows not which is which. And this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. We are their parents and original. While that speech refers to natural disasters caused by Oberon and Titania's fighting, one cannot help but also connect her words to the climate change we are seeing today. Extreme, unseasonal, and devastating shifts in temperature, flooding, Famine and widespread disease are some of the unnatural calamities mentioned in the speech. It is my hope that we as a society learn from Titania's closing revelation that our fighting and inability to communicate has dire consequences. I am also pleased to announce that ISC will be centering environmental action in our civic engagement initiatives in the park this summer. This is the most pressing issue facing our community, and we can no longer ignore it. Now, why is it our place as a theater company to insert civic engagement and communal responsibility into our work and programming? What is our role as theater artists in social justice and mutual aid efforts? I had the incredible privilege of exploring these questions with our local representative, theater artist, 
Lucille Lortel Award winner, Outer Critics Circle Award winner, and Pulitzer Prize finalist, Christina Wong, just hours before she made her way to the legendary Sardis to collect her Drama Desk Award for outstanding solo performance in New York Theater Workshop's production of her piece, Sweatshop Overlord. Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really appreciate it. I know you were taking the time out of your busy schedule, jet setting out here. No, I'm calling. I'm I'm talking to you from New York City, where I'll be picking up the Drama Desk Award for Best Solo Performer. Yeah. Well, it's a reception at Sardi's, which is like this restaurant. Oh, yeah. Square. You know this? Where they have, oh, I like, know Sardi's, but for, for our listeners, they might not know. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how you describe it, but I've never been in there. But there's like all these uh, caricatures of actors on the wall. And and um, I get a minute to thank the entire planet. And uh, I think I'm the first, I believe I, yes, I am. I'm the first Asian American woman to, to win the award in this category in oh, best solo performer, which just feels huge, right? That is that is huge. I am that's walking really history. That's right. <laughs> you are walking history. Yeah, uh, we're all walking history. Well, when I say we, we're I'm talking about mostly people of color who make that's art. That's right. Yep. Walking <laughs> history that a lot of people don't know, or walking history that is usually often actively erased. So, yes. Yeah, yes. So when we dare intentionally put ourselves in front of people to absorb a narrative that is usually not reflected we are walking history so i will be walking history with a drama desk i hope they physically give me an award because we're going to go see company that night my friend and i and i just want to Amazing. walk just want to walk, walk around with it award? I want to walk yeah. around with it in my arms yesterday awesome. i came from the airport to a show at uh, the wild project and they were like oh we're all sold out and i was like i'm a pulitzer prize finalist like i don't. And did they give you a ticket? They gave me a ticket, yes. <laughs> but I I pulled that dumb card. I'm I got into Raya, the dating app. I got a I got a text this morning saying, oh, Welcome to I Raya. That. Is it's it the like the elite a dating app? But I still have to pay to use it. So but I, I was like, thank you, pull it. You gotta pay? Yeah, it's like but it's cheaper than like a match.com or whatever. It's it ends up if I do the whole year, which I think I probably will, because you know you know, keep my options open for a year. Uh, it ends up being like 10 bucks a month. But okay. so I didn't, I didn't join join yet, but I was like, oh, they finally, they finally let me a trial in. Run. <laughs> so ridiculous. Okay. Okay. We're supposed to talk about social justice and not my uh, <laughs> dating life. Well, just in general, well, we can talk about that too. Whatever. Yeah. Saying. Dating is social so justice. People what they want. People I'm sure <laughs> to know about uh, your, your experiences on Riot. But can you give our, our listeners just a little background on yourself? Oh, they're not yes. familiar with If you. you're not familiar with me. Well, I'm, maybe they're not. I'm Christina Wong. I identify as a performance artist, a comedian, but not in that like stand-up mainstream sense, more in the sort of a, a culture jamming hacker sense. And I'm also an elected official. I uh, ran for public office in Koreatown, Los Angeles in, what year was that? Was it 2019 I ran? Yeah. Um, mostly as a response to a world where we're making intentional satire didn't seem to 
clearly it, it, it felt unclear as someone who was using a lot of satire in her previous work mm-hmm. where I fit in in a world where daily headlines and I'm mostly describing sort of my experience of the last presidential administration like everything felt like a an onion headline in real life so I ran for office mm-hmm. um I just woke up one day after two failed attempts or not a it's not failure. It's like, it's, it's attempts at trying to understand how to address this moment in art. I was like, it doesn't make sense to bring everyone to the theater to try to satirize a situation that is much more um, absurd than anything I could ever imagine in my creative brain to tell everybody, isn't this so crazy? And Mm -hmm. I just was like, I should just run for office because artists and politicians are clearly have switched jobs. (laughs) Yeah. And politicians are now the spectacle makers and they're the clowns and artists are the ones left holding the bag and trying to reclaim social change and, 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 and hold some space for, for truth and change. And, and, um, and so I looked into, I was like, that's going to be the show. I'm going to run for office. and I'm going to make a show about that. And after looking into how expensive it is to run um, a political campaign, especially in the city of Los Angeles, where I live, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically if you look at the numbers, the person who, the people who, who tend to win have raised the most money. Um, this recent primary, there are a few candidates who, who did not raise as much as the person that they will be running off against. However, it, um, it, it, money has a lot to do with who will get elected because it's about visibility and ads and those are not cheap things. So I ended up running for neighborhood council, which costs nothing to file to run. And essentially I just like waved people down on the street uh, to vote for me. The one day waiter voting thing. It's an unpaid elected office. I won with 72 votes. If you include the vote I cast for myself. Yeah. And, um, and I was reelected recently with 19 votes total, including the vote I cast for myself. So as you can tell, it's a very, very hot office to hold. Oh yeah. No, it's not. It's not. It's it, it's well, it's yeah, it's a it's its own specific system inside of LA. Um it's important though. It, it is important. Very critical. It's important. Uh there, yeah, there's many elected offices that that are part-time or volunteer um that 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 people could run for. And uh and then I did a show about that called Christina Wong for Public Office, which looked like a big rally. Um, it was supposed to tour all during 2020 uh, alongside the real life in-person rallies that we would experience it. Uh, as we all know, everyone's show was sidelined by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I sew my set pieces and props. And so I found myself uh, deemed non-essential by the pandemic in March yeah. 2020, Ditto. Uh, as all artists were. And I saw that there was a need for home sewn face masks. And so I started sewing masks for essentially like frontline workers and anyone who said they needed it. I, I, I just was called like Joan of Arc uh, to sew and to fix this problem for my Hello Kitty sewing machine. I overpromised to too many people I can help you and ended up starting a Facebook group called the Auntie Sewing Squad, um, which uh, we we thought we would just be like a two week effort to kind of temporarily get fabric masks out there until these theoretical cargo ships of masks showed up from China and our theoretical government theoretically distributed all these masks to people who needed it. That did not really happen. And so for 17 months, we were a mutual aid group. I describe it what female would look like if run by a comedian. 
um, we became, Ooh, we oh, became yes. a, yeah, we became yes. a network of 800 aunties um, yes. across 33 states. And we went on for 17 months and we not just, we didn't just distribute 350,000 masks to very vulnerable communities, which included farm workers, uh, indigenous communities, unhoused communities, incarcerated communities, migrants seeking asylum at the border, like basically the communities that will be the most left behind by federal aid. Um, but we also coordinated some pretty major, at least major to us, um, relief drives. We, we sent six vans of relief supplies to the Navajo Nation. We coordinated uh, medical and relief supplies to Lakota folks in Standing Rock. We, yes. uh, we sent a lot of uh, medical grade N95s to farm workers during the California fires. We held two winter coat drives. So it was like a, it was supposed to be like a little thing I was doing, which kept blowing up bigger and bigger and bigger. So the point being that became the subject of my newest solo show, Christina Wong's Sweatshop Overlord, which I was sort of playing around with on Zoom uh, during the pandemic thinking, oh God, we're never going to return to real life or in-person life. And um, New York Theater Workshop premiered it in the fall uh, as, as the first in-person show. And it is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and has won Best Solo Award, Best Solo Show Award from the Lortels, the Drama Desks, and the Outer Critic Circle. So, Woo. yeah, people, yeah. <laughs> it's so nuts that... I, this was the last thing I thought that would happen out of this time. And I definitely did not do this because I thought, oh, this will be good material for something. I really had just, I just, yeah, I just wanted yeah, to get us out of this. That? I'm going to go in a mute, really difficult mutual yeah. and expect to like get awards from it because it's oftentimes that work is, is very invisible and is not usually, mm -hmm. but it's critical. And that's why communities on the, you know, grassroots level. And, and and it is like I I didn't even know what mutual aid was honestly when when uh, I started this effort people kept saying that's what I was doing and I was like I didn't go to that conference what is that word <laughs> and I actually had to go to YouTube and go what is mutual aid and found I, and I picked you know so a few videos to pick from I picked the cartoon because I was like okay that's the that'll be the easiest that I can deal with right now yeah. but basically I would describe mutual aid as um, charity without paternalism. And without the bureaucracy. So what I deal with as a neighborhood council person, yeah, neighborhood council is very bureaucratic, right? Like we, yesterday I was in a meeting on Zoom and we waited for an hour to, it's for more people to show up so we could meet quorum and we didn't meet quorum. So we didn't have, a, we haven't had a functional meeting uh in months because we have had so that, many people drop out does that mean quorum is just if you quorum is is half in uh, we define it in our neighborhood council as half plus one of the elected members oh, unfortunately wow. we've had so many people drop out of neighborhood council that we have not been able to reach quorum and quorum is sort of a majority of elected people who show up and this happens in other like other groups that are elected also need to meet quorum um for us, it's particularly difficult because now we uh, we need new people to join, so we actually have enough people to meet quorum. It's it's well, it's a big disaster. So so that's that's bureaucracy, right? And that's what keeps us from being able to vote on what groups in our neighborhood should go get some money and help make decisions like that. Um, uh, and and paternalism, 
you know, I would describe that as like the, the clearest example is, is like, if you watch like a save the children commercial, right. Where you literally see, they show like these kids covered in flies in different countries and only you, only you America can save them. And it, and it creates this thinking like, yeah. Oh, let's send them our old shoes or, yeah. or they, they're so helpless. Right. Or they have nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, With no conversation about the systems uh, that have, Yes. Led to this or like the effects of you know u.s imperialism and all of those things absolutely and that the, and that the, and, part of the conversation and and that they're they they're, they can't possibly have dignity you yeah. know so we can't possibly treat them as if they have dignity so so to me mutual aid is is understanding that that the people you're also working with who need the support are are affected in ways by a broken system and that they deserve you know they they can communicate to you what they need exactly it's not you assuming oh you you most definitely need my old graduation gown right and my old high heels don't you navajo nation in in this pandemic that's what you right. need right like and right. we've had a, and and you know doing this kind of work where you we actually ask what what is it you need and we see if we can access it and get it over there and respect that that their organizers are are like us also yeah. just trying to get support quickly to people which um, that seems it it seems simple enough right just yeah. ask people <laughs> what they want ask people what they need uplift mm -hmm. and center them and yes. their voices and, and their, their efforts not about you and it seems like yeah. it's an easy concept but yes it's hard for people <laughs> yeah it's so hard and i still have occasional people who email going i'm cleaning out my garage and i found some old books do you want to drive them over if not i'm going to send them to kenya and i was like no 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 <laughs> so much no like <laughs> oh, God. oh such a disaster some you know uh, but i think oh lord we're not here to take on your guilt in your garbage right. <laughs> like, right you know come on um and yeah we don't and we don't want things that are broken like no. you're just gonna create more stuff so so this is yeah so that's that's what this effort was and and really what i was witnessing was the invisible work of sewing mm. um which is something that is that uh, I think if you look globally, it is performed by a lot of women and a lot of women in um, uh, Asia and actually now a lot of countries of color, right? Yeah. Um, but but I think, you know, what, where a lot of our manufacturing does come from is China. I'm Chinese American. My grandparents came to this country, um, at least on my father's side, and they ran a laundry, which was a very Chinese American business to have when you showed up in San Francisco in the, in, in that decade, uh, because it was sort of like the only work that Chinese Americans sort of were able to do because it was considered women's work. No one wanted to do that work. And, um, and so, so there is a history of garment work and, uh, work with fabric in my family. And I, I learned to sew, um, witnessing the women in my family, teach me how to sew. Um, and a lot of our aunties, our first aunties were Asian women who actually had mothers and grandmothers who were in the garment industry and they would help them with piecework as kids, yeah. right? They would help them cut, cut like a row of cuffs or, or cut threads and things like that. And it was bringing up a lot of shit in the group to, that, you know, at first it was this, this patriotic thing. We're going to help our fellow American. And it was like, oh my God, what are we doing? We're like, 
we were like the dream of our grandparents. And it's not that it's not, this is skilled labor that no Absolutely. one respects. Yeah. Um, My mom is a sewer as well. Yeah. It's not that we're, that we're better than this so labor. Much. It's that, oh, this crazy irony that, you know, we had ancestors who worked in sweatshops and now we're re replicating that work for free because America did not prepare us for this crisis. And so sweatshop overlord became my nickname in the group. It was sort of this dark humor moment. I was like, oh, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> why is this, why is this pattern recreating itself? What is happening? Um, and yeah, and, 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 and a lot of our group survived through sort of this humor, but also it was becoming clear that people did not understand like, just because you send me more, more money doesn't mean we sew faster, you know, like, right. and, and we were taking the money's donations where we're not keeping it as, as money for ourselves. Right. Um, because that would become very confusing very quickly. I'd, I'd be having to run a payroll and stuff like that. And, yeah. um, and so, so much of what we were doing and why I created the show was to, to, to create some meaning around all this labor I was witnessing. I also was like, really hit with the fact that Asian Americans were sort of the face of the enemy mm. um, as the, you know, it was not helped by, by certain um, alleged, alleged presidents referring yeah. it to right. it as the China virus. Right. And, yeah. and we saw a huge, like just Spike grandmas yeah, getting attacked. And some of our Asian aunties also experienced like just being yelled at in the street. I experienced internet harassment. Um, and, and, and it was just like, I want the world to see that Asian American women right now are doing the work of caring for people, of protecting people's lives, and are doing the work of racial solidarity because we were sewing for all these communities, right, that, that had long since been forgotten by the federal government. And that's why I, I for me, wanted to make this show. Like people were like, oh God, is this going to be your next show? I'm like, no, because we're all living through this. Why would anyone want to watch the pandemic all watch over again on stage? Right. Oops. You know? <laughs> like, oh, what was that shift like? How did you get there? Yeah. I mean, it, well, it became really clear, like the kind of stuff I was witnessing felt, felt like such a specific, crazy point of view. Um, mm. The kind of conversations I was having with organizers just all over the country and the, and, and how they were trying to rethink their distribution systems. Like I remember the first Navajo organizer I talked to and, and they just needed like 20 masks because their youth, the, the sort of the youth volunteers were, were helping to get supplies to people. And you were getting like, I was getting like sort of snapshot pictures mentally of what was happening in yeah. other areas where there is no, there are no roads, right? And sometimes, or there's no water, or there's no whatever. And and or in the case of Navajo Nation, only 13 grocery stores across an area the size of West Virginia. And uh, I remember getting this message from uh, an indigenous tribe in Alaska, and all the supplies they had been sent were stuck in Anchorage. However, this mutual aid organizer had figured out there was an address that could receive packages. And they found a jet that would fly those packages into this small village where there was only one hospital with 20 beds that would, but it served like t all these tribes. Right. And you had to fly, if you were really in a remote part of the village, you have to fly into that hospital. And they only had like two ventilators or something like that. 
And so, and I would just sort of like, you know, I'm barefoot in my house reading these messages and trying to figure out how we're going to help get them supplies. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm a performance artist. This is nuts. Why is there no government right now helping with this? Yeah. So, so these were these moments that I was witnessing that I was like, I have to share this and make visible this labor, this incredible labor and love um, not to make us the center or the heroes, but because I, I just, it was so incredible. I, I, I feel like I found this new love. I mean, I, I'm very annoyed by a lot of people <laughs> in the aftermath oh, yeah. of the pandemic. But oh, yeah. I, uh, and you maybe could guess who they are, right? The, the, the naysayers, the people who who would be like, "You're wasting your time," or yeah, um, the people, or the who, people who were really like, you know, about things at first in a performative way and then yeah. got bored mm-hmm. and gave up and yeah. forgot because it didn't affect them because mm-hmm. they were not directly impacted. So once it was not trendy, they moved on. Yeah. And I, um, so I, 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 but I also found a lot of love, like the way mm-hmm. the aunties, we took care of each other. Um, and I really felt like I was fighting, not just to get masks on faces, but also for people to sort of respect this labor and to witness us as people, because it's so easy to press a few buttons when you're on Amazon and then something shows up on your doorstep. But we had to recreate a whole supply chain. The way I had to access Elastic was was insane. I had to, I had to send a haggle auntie knocking on doors that might be open in the garment district with cash. Woo! Like to bring me like spools of Elastic that were really meant for things like lingerie or you know, <laughs> you know, other kinds of yeah. elastic. I had to sh- find crazy ways to sh- get and ship this or throw these over fences so that, so that aunties could sew it. And I, I, I don't know that I want people to understand how, how much work and love went into this. And, 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 and that we, we had an auntie who passed away in the pandemic, Auntie Sally Nemeth. I'm going to say oh, her I'm name. Sorry. Yeah. She had cancer. She had cancer the whole time. And she was still sewing. She knew she could pass away and she was still sewing masks, you know? Mm. That is what people need to understand. Like this is the kind of love. And when you ask for a mask and and when you have the gall to ask me to make you some custom mask with customized fabric, which I cannot fucking find at the top of the pandemic. Oh Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, you you are are belittling our work and, and, and I really need you to hold up the fact that we are putting ourselves at risk to do this. And if we're going to be accountable to the health of this community, if you have the capacity, I need you to be accountable to ours, right? Um, that we are not disposable people who are just going to so and so and so nonstop. Uh, we, and, and yes, we can stop whenever we want. However, we don't want to because we, we see that communities are dying right now. And this is our yeah. duty as a human being to another human being. And so, and, and, and just to see the love of these aunties and like, I don't, I still don't know what half the aunties do for a living, you mm-hmm. know, and some of them unemployed and that's so not LA In LA, you usually that's meet people true. through their profession first. Right. And what can you get to me? What do you have that I can get? And this was a, this weird equalizer where it doesn't matter what you have. You don't have a mask. You could die, you know? And, and I felt that I felt that very clearly. And so I, I just wanted to, I, I just had this moment in it where I'd meet people in front of my home and we'd be like six feet apart, waving frantically at each other, the equivalent of a hug as much as we could. 
and getting masks or supplies or whatever to them and thinking, wow, I, I've never met someone, I've never met people on this level of generosity and what we had to give to each other mm. instead of what we had to take or what, what kind of transactions we, we could have in the future. Yes. Um, and so that was so profound. And I was like, I, God, I wish I had more relationships like this. I just wish it wasn't in the context of this existential or, or you know, this very real threat that we could all die. Um, so that was also something I, I wanted to celebrate in the show and in my work and, and, and I, why I, you know, it, it sounds like I talk about a cult sometimes because it was like we were doing this homesteading activity to like save us all. But it was a really profound experience for all of us involved to be able to literally send protection to communities and people we'd never met before that was made with our hands. Yeah, and, and the impact of it was definitely felt. I, I remember when I started hearing about the auntie sewing spot, I was like, this is amazing. And and yeah. Marisa, who works with us, was, was sewing. Oh, that's right, she's sewing. Yeah, she was <laughs> one of the people I saw on my doorstep and she'd bring me food. That, and so this started this care train where you didn't just like come by for with food or whatever, or, or, or for, with masks or elastic, um, but you'd bring some care items. Um, mm -hmm. And then like people kept bringing me food. There was one month in June, I only spent $5 in groceries. What? So many people Everyone were bringing food, but I would bring the, I would, I would send the food right back out to people who were coming for pick. I can't, can I eat all these cookies all day long? I mean, maybe oh, I could, goodness. but, but you know, and, and, and it became sort of some of the aunties who got tired of sewing would, would care for the others. Cause it's really hard oh, to, that you know, is, yeah. For some aunties, it's really hard to stop. If you knew that you being behind your sewing machine for another hour could be the difference between life or death for like an entire family, you would, mm. that's what made it so hard for me to stop was. Stakes, especially at that time when you all started out, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And before and there were any masks in the market. Like it was the early, early days. Oh, I know. But it, yeah, those first 10 days were insane. I, 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 I aged so much. Um, just I, it went from me going look at what I made on my Hello Kitty sewing machine everybody to like I was on the phone with organizers around the country I was on the phone with garment and like companies like trying to figure out how to get their excess stuff it's just bananas um yeah it felt like a an empire that blew up like in 10 days sheesh it was yeah. cuckoo <coughs> Can you just talk about just a little bit how you connect like art and activism? Because I think it's and social justice work and mutual aid work, because I think often in like the arts community and the theater community, there's always this sort of separation between like artists and what we do in our community and the actual local community that we are in, that we are serving. And there's like this disconnect. Especially, mm. I mean, speaking specifically about Los Angeles, too. Yeah. Because we have, we have such a vast, spread out theater community, right? And oftentimes, yeah. really just us. We don't even know what we're all doing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's hard to create, like, a culture of community within L.A. theater. But even outside of that, it's hard to get, like, our local community engaged. And, and a lot of times, theater companies don't really see 
the point of like inserting social justice work or anti-racist work or mutual aid work in what we do. But I feel like, I mean, me personally, and I know that's at the core of what ISC does, like our connection to the community is in, is integral to the work yeah. that we and the work we do as artists and art is inherently political and art is inherently powerful. Like the way mm -hmm. that you've translated things into performance and performance art, that's getting those stories out there. That's sparking empathy in people mm -hmm. who maybe might not know about it. So can you just talk just a little bit about how you're able to do that? Because I want more people to see it is possible. It yeah, really is. I, I'm a big fan of devised work, which I didn't know was called devised work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but the, the best way I can describe it is you go into the process with no script. Mm -hmm. And you come out with a script and a show. And a lot of it, uh, a lot of the things I love doing is working with communities. I find, I feel like they're, that, that folks who aren't actors are actually more interesting, which I know. <laughs> it's hard yeah, like no, say it, say it. A lot but, of actors don't want to hear that. I mean, mostly what the skill of acting is, is being able to kind of pull up things on command, right? That yeah. aren't there or take direction easily. I mean, that's sort of the downside of working with real people. They're like, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting so long? You know, um, but I like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I also find it's like less pressure on me. Like some folks have asked me like, why don't you, you if you taught like a solo show making class, you could charge hundreds of dollars. I'm like, I don't want to work with, <laughs> with, you know, just anyone who, who has a show. I, I actually want to work with the folks who, who, who are really like, not that solo show folks, folks who want to make their own solo show, um, you know, obviously have a burning need to tell their story, but but there are, are folks who've never done the arts before. And it's like so exciting to see them release something publicly, like for the first time. And and uh, so right now I'm working with formerly incarcerated Asian Pacific Islanders yeah. uh, on our second round of a theater piece. We have no script going into it. And our process has been, and we're doing it on Zoom too, because East West Players, oh. which is producing it, uh, they're having the theater renovated. Uh, but actually, it doesn't. It's not a bad thing to work on Zoom because it's less pressure for them to be hyper focused on like, am I projecting? Am I looking everyone in the eye? Like, yeah, something about Zoom is a little bit more casual. But a lot of them are in transitional homes because they've gotten out of they just got out of prison, and and they've just come home, right? And and so it's uh, it's a little bit more comfortable for them just to work where they live. And the way the process we've done is. Uh, I have prompts and sort of exercises like show me some objects or, or, that represent your past, your present and your future. Mm -hmm. So they've pulled up everything from prison IDs to things they meditate with. And, um, and then there's a transcriber whose video is off, who's transcribing all the things that are said. And within a, at least last round, within like three meetings, we had a script. We could just because the stories, that yeah. they have like most of That's your friends will not have the kind of stories they've had like yeah. i i don't have a lot of friends who've done 20 years in prison uh but these folks have and their perspective on time and also sort of the presence that they bring to a moment is really interesting like i i was like thinking wow you could train an actor to perform them right now or you could just have them here and so 
Um, so, so, so that's sort of more my interest in in uh, in activism and work is like bringing these communities right to the stage. I'm not hyper focused on like training or Alexander technique. I don't even know how this works, but but I I mean so much of like what I think the like when I think about activism and art, it's really just thinking about what are these narratives that we don't get and how do you present them in front of people? How do you uh, and I feel like formerly incarcerated APIs, you get all these issues at once. Um, a lot of those folks are up for um, deportation. They have ice holds yeah. on them. Some of them had to go right from federal prison to ICE. Um, you have a lot of issues of shame and the model minority myth. And there's just no shortage of interesting looks at, at race. And, you know, when, um, at least in the California prison system, I believe inmates are separated by race. Yeah, uh, it's by race and also sometimes, but also by like neighborhood affiliation. Yeah. Affiliation. It's just, yeah, it's for, you know, quote unquote and safe. But so suddenly, also- yeah, you have a bunch of Asian gangs who are rival gangs on the outside yeah. Yeah. who now have to defend, you know, support each other because of the Mexican gang that's inside that has a hit on them or whatever. These are, these are things they've quoted to me that I might be misquoting, but my jaw is always like, yeah. Oh my God, what am I doing here? (laughs) I also trust me with this prisons and, and youth facilities as well. So it's, it's very real. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I feel like that. Yeah. Work done in communities and about communities is, is really the richest the most real, um, mm-hmm. but really and for the communities. Yeah, and and it's a certain kind of liberation that I'd hope the participants are experiencing. Yeah, that's why I got into this, because um, I mean, even as an as a sort of traditional actor, I don't audition very well, to be quite honest. And that's why I was. <laughs> uh, well, you still killing it? Anyway. No, I'm killing. I'm killing the game because I made my own game, which is I make my that's own work. Right, right, and that's and that's sort of how this that's to me is what the activism is is right like all right even even the asian american playwrights can't figure out how to use me in their work so we're gonna i'm I'm gonna be the playwright and i'm gonna cast myself and like basically all my plays would be impossible for another actor to do because i've squeezed my fucking name into every show that would be that'd be interesting but uh yeah a little bit of a challenge yeah but yeah, I, I mean, is that is that sort of an answer for you? I, no, I just feel yes. like oh that's to me what this is. Yes. It's and it's and I feel like so much um my frustration, I feel like theaters think of working with youth or having a community project is like that side mm-hmm. thing you do to to look good and get those side yes. grants. But I feel like if all these conversations around centering BIPOC voices and being an anti-racist organization are true. What this really means is that that instead of just presenting proscenium work where the artist is on one side and the audience is in the dark and the other, it's figuring out how to create a circle. And to me, that circle is that community-based work. Now, does this mean that I'm asking theaters to, to produce my from number to name, my formerly incarcerated API project? Uh, up for six weeks? No, not necessarily, because I don't think that those participants 
couldn't sustain doing that for six weeks. That's where, that's why you would have an actor, right? An actor has that training to physically do that for six weeks and they're not dredging up their own story again and again. Like you're kind of good for two shows and you feel good, right? (laughs) In my opinion. Um, But, but it is thinking about like, how can more of these programs be, when we, uh, how can more community-based programming in a, in a theater be given the same weight or importance and not be seen as sort of the weird side chick of theater programming. So that's, that's sort of what I'm thinking about. And I see theaters attempting it with things like talkbacks or more kind of community round tables. But I, I do feel like, I think finding more community centered programming, it's not quote unquote financially sustainable, they say. Um, But I think this is, I don't, I, yeah, I, I agree. Yes. Honestly, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I also do feel I mean, like. In the long run, it actually is financially sustainable. Because yeah. when, you, when you have support from the community as a whole. Yes. I mean, speaking as like. But that's where your audience will be. That's the audience. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping in because I just saw that San Diego rep ceased operations. Right. And that's, oh. that's, that's, yeah. And they were around for over 40 years. Mm. Um, and a lot of regional theaters are in trouble too. And a lot of it is sort of the death of like, we cannot just rely on rich, older white people to write big checks, especially if your city does not, is not a bunch of, you know, (laughs) doesn't look like that. So you, you know, funding the arts, which in the United States overall arts, we're the whipping boy of every budget cut where it's like, where to cut first. Oh, the arts, like, Uh, you know, when I think about San Diego rep closing, I'm thinking about all those restaurants and businesses and um, all those things around the theater that, that they helped bring traffic to, right. Um, The conversations that would happen between all the companies. And, and these are the kind of bigger things you need to have the way as having value uh, when you think about investing in the arts. And so I think it's really incredible if we were to think about more community-based work, um, finding its way to the quote unquote main stage or the, or, you know, what we think of as regional theaters, even if it's just a weekend or, or two or, or witnessing a process, because those folks that are going to come there, that's, that's what the city looks like. That's your audience. Yeah. Um, this is how we, cool. I don't know if saying save is the word. <laughs> this is how people of color save you, white people. Saving them from, you know, white supremacy. We all suffer under white supremacy. Yeah. People. So, yeah. But how we save you is, is, is we, you know, we bring the city back into your show by, you know, put the city on the stage um, and develop voices that way. I find the audition model, by the way, to be so colonial and demoralizing and so awful so awful right you're just (laughs) so i mean this is also what draws me to to solo and autobiographical work is like no one can i guess people can tell me people do that but but there is less gatekeeping when yeah yeah i'm 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 the the gatekeeper creating this work yep yeah well, thank you. This is yes. Thank Woo! you. I feel even more just inspired. Yeah, Always. Thank inspired. you. Well, it's, I'm thank you for getting back in touch. Yeah, of course. You, work at, you do all the theaters. You work at all. The, it makes me happy I that you're doing this gig. Busy. Gig. This I am busy. This, this work. 
Yeah. yeah um, this before, before I let you go, any other specifics about ways that our listeners can support you? Upcoming projects, ways yes. that they can support Auntie Sewing Squad, Mutual Aid Efforts. Yeah, Auntie Sewing Squad. We're... We was we still uh, we have aunties not abandoning labor because we are retired as a mask sewing group. So mm-hmm. aunties not abandoning labor, aka A N A L anal. Or so our anal aunties are still. Um, I love it. We're we're sewing hygiene bags. Uh, you can get you can go to auntiesewingsquad.com and email me, and I can if you want to sew hygiene bags. But we also have a bunch of uh, groups who were doing the work before the pandemic, during, and after. And one of them is Team Brownsville. They welcome. 200 to 400 migrants a day at the border. Uh, They need everything from brand new sneakers for folks who've been Mm. literally like walking across an an entire country to, um, to have new shoes uh, and hygiene supplies and masks. So, so we're trying to route a lot of attention their way to get those supplies to them. And then I will be directing from number to name in early August. It'll be online and there'll be a replay available and it will be produced by East West players. Um, And they have not yet announced it, but we have a cast that is uh, for the most part, I think, yeah, all, all but one formerly incarcerated um, APIs. And uh, we actually have three, we'll have three women in the cast who've experienced and been impacted by incarceration. So um, four, four are actually been in part, impacted by incarceration. She has uh, relatives who are in, inside. So um, mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's, there's no other show that's been made like this, like I know, and very honored to have their trust in ushering this forward. Yeah. Yeah, I I look forward to that, and I'm also gonna reach out to the people in my networks as well. Please do, yeah. Frustrated folks, and maybe I don't know if because we have brought in programming inside, so I don't know if maybe we can. But I'm gonna reach out because that's incredible. Maybe the replay could be available to them. I'm not sure, Um, but yeah, we we hope to do uh, API Rise is the name of the support group that is partnering with East West Players, and that I'm a member of. And we have these support meetings and um, we want to, we would love to do screenings in people's homes and bring one of the API Rise members to maybe do a Q&A with you live in your house after you watch oh, it. Yeah. So we're just thinking of ways to, to talk about some of the advocacy that API Rise is doing, but also kind of bring attention to the, to the work um, that we do as a group. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so thank much. You. Yes. I know it's not a busy day. I know. Got to go pick up an award. Got to put my face on. That's right. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. All right. Take care. Christina Wong, everyone. As inspiring as she is entertaining. To keep up with Christina's work, follow her on Instagram at Miss Christina Wong and head to her website, ChristinaWong.com, and that's Christina with a K. To learn more about Auntie Sewing Squad's latest mutual aid projects, follow them at Auntie Sewing. You can also follow the East West Players at East West Players and purchase tickets for their productions at EastWestPlayers.org. What I absolutely love about Independent Shakespeare Company's board of directors is that they are just as committed to our specific work in the arts sector as they are to other organizations serving our community. I spoke with board member Ebony Murphy-Root about her work as an educator and with NARAL, 
during this dangerous shift in our country's stance on reproductive rights. I am joined right now by ISC board member Ebony Murphy-Root. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining and for being part of this interview. I wanted to start by just giving you the space to share a little bit about yourself for our listeners today. Sure. I am a middle school English teacher, done to middle and high school. It's my 13th year of teaching and my seventh year in LA. I'm originally from Connecticut. Oh, nice, nice. So this is your 13th year teaching at, at Crossroads at the same place? No, no. I uh, have been teaching Crossroads for five years. Awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about your work with NARL, a little bit about what the organization does and how you came to this work? Sure. So when I moved to Long Beach about four years ago, I wanted to get more involved um in community stuff i'd been involved with NARAL connecticut in my 20s and um i just started supporting local candidates uh, running for office and then i realized what i really liked about that work um, was fundraising for people not so much canvassing door knocking i don't want to text bank anybody but i love getting people together to fundraise and a lot of people don't like to do that a lot of people don't like to ask for money i love to ask for money <laughs> so i put the word out among friends that I would really like to join the NARAL California Privacy Pack. Um, <clears throat> and then a few months later, someone called and asked me if I wanted to join. So I don't know if my friends kind of put the word out or if uh, folks just saw my interest, but I was really excited to join that board. And I've been on that board for about two years. NARAL was for, uh, founded in 1969. And uh, it's an acronym. Uh, it's kind of one of those things like the NAACP that doesn't have a real acronym anymore, but used to. So it was founded Right. The National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws. And then after Roe, it became the National Abortion Rights Action League. And now it's just NARAL and doesn't really stand for anything. It's just that's the name now. Um, so the local California uh, Privacy Pack fundraises for local candidates that are running that are, are reproductive justice, a reproductive freedom champion. So people who are not afraid to go up to Sacramento and say the word abortion plus, uh, you know, family leave, parental leave, um, yes. expanding health insurance for people, that sort of thing. But really what we look for is people who are not just uh, willing to talk about choice, um, but to say abortion, that it's okay to say abortion, um, and who are, are going to support our work. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I love, Aisa, you love asking people for money. Hey, I let's do. do you gotta when we gotta fundraise we gotta fundraise and yeah. sometimes that's that's how we keep a lot of this work going and and it is really critical work especially with what we're seeing happening right now uh in in this country yeah it's really important and i think people especially in la or new york big cities i'm from connecticut people have money they do and they just um sometimes are waiting to be asked and so i think those of us who are teachers or actors who don't make millions of dollars sometimes feel a little bit more, um, a little uncomfortable with that, but people really mm. do wanna be asked. And what I've learned about fundraising is you can never really tell. So people kind of assume, oh, that's how, that, that's how much that person could maybe have to give, but you don't really know. So it's best to ask and then people can decide, I can't give that much or maybe I can give more. Yeah, and I'm curious also, do 
because you mentioned like in in California and New York and Connecticut, do they operate in most states? Is there like support that will maybe come from a space like California that probably has a lot of support to go into other states and, and help where it might be a little bit more challenging with this kind of work? Yeah, so there's a national mayoral pro-choice um, America, and then there were a lot of satellite state level groups. Some of them have gone off the individual um, uh, campaigns, not connected to, to national ones, um, but California is the biggest one and remains under the NARAL umbrella. Um, but also they partner with many other reproductive freedom groups like Access Reproductive Justice. Sometimes we'll partner with Planned Parenthood. Sometimes it's smaller ones that maybe the names are not so familiar, but always partnering with other groups with a similar objective. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. And you mentioned earlier about being an educator at Crossroads. I would love to know a little bit more about that part of your work, especially as someone who's also an educator. I'm always just interested in learning more about why we do this, why we do what we do, because it is really beautiful, important, the most important work because we're, you know, helping our, our next generation. But I'd love to know more about how you came to being an educator. Sure. Yeah, I'm a classroom teacher. I really enjoy being a classroom teacher. Um, I know a lot of people who don't teach in classrooms prefer the term educator, but I really prefer the term teacher because I think that it's, okay. a, it's a devalued term. And so I'm always like, I'm a teacher. And people are like, this is Ebony. My friend, she's an educator. And I'm like, no, I'm a teacher. And that's fine. I really love that. And people kind of are taken aback. I think I love uh, that. Yeah. 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 It's definitely. I've way. always sometimes I'll say teacher and people be like, well, I'm an educator. I'm yeah. Doing, I also say like, I'm a teaching artist. I'm a teacher. Yeah. I don't I have a problem with that. That's fine. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Teach that. <laughs> um, I, I, I teach humanities. I started off as a, as an English teacher. And I just think that to keep our society going, to keep our democracy going, it's really important to have people who can read well and like interact with text and like respond to theater and, and film and culture. And that really begins for a lot of people in English classes. I know a lot of people feel like, oh, I had like a horrible teaching or learning experience in school, but I always loved English class. I love uh, jumping into a text. It doesn't always have to be about me and my particular experience. It's like a black girl in Connecticut. I can read a tree girls in Brooklyn, really relate to that. Or I can relate to, uh, you know, the hate you give. It can really be anything. Mm. And I think what's most important is showing kids that it's important to always expand your vocabulary, expand um, the topics that you interact with, search out like new authors, old authors, authors who are in conversation with other authors, um, read fiction, nonfiction, magazines, the back of the um, cereal box. I just think it's important to always be reading and seeing what's out there and responding to it and sharing with other people. Yeah. Um, and so at Crossroads, I found a community that really values the written word and really values sort of taking time to interact with a text or interact with a film and have conversations about it and ask smart questions about it. I love that. And I love that you tie so much of your work into the arts mm -hmm. and, and, and films. And of course, when we're in English classes, because I know this is something that comes up a lot as someone who will teach Shakespeare too, it's like making sure people have a full understanding of, hey, this was a work to be performed and this was communal. And like, there's so much more beyond the text. And it, sure. it sounds like you tap into that a lot, which is really awesome. 
Yeah, um, sort of the writers and artists of any time are always the, the radicals of their time, right? So if you're, you know, just reading the text, you're going to miss some of the double entendres and the raunchiness mm. and the humor and the wordplay that makes it so fun and exciting. Yeah. And, and especially now teaching with the humanities, I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen this so much here or, or teaching at Crossroads, but with this kind of push against like CRT critical race theory and, and teaching about like just experiences and history and general historic fact, like there's pushback against that now. Have you run into any of that? One of my colleagues did have a mom who asked like, what percentage of your English classes is critical race theory? And we just laughed at that because critical race theory is like a real thing founded by a real person. Yes, Kimberly oh okay. Yes, and so it really irks me. Like every, you can't call everything you don't like that's about race critical race theory. Like it really annoys me. Like a, 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 a YA novel about race is not critical race theory. So that <laughs> just annoys me from jump. Um, how it's just become this catch-all. Um, but then the, the idea that you shouldn't be learning about race and class and gender at school because that's the parent's job and you should only be learning like numbers and phonics or something at school. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I used to teach in public school and I, my public school teachers are have a much more difficult job than I do because they have to deal with that sort of um, just kind of parents who will just say anything and that they don't really understand you have to respond to that so I get less of that yeah um thank goodness um but like public school teachers are really doing a really difficult job because they're trying to keep these really important topics alive in the face of people who really are just trying to shut down conversation and shut down knowledge um, because they don't want to teach their own kids to grapple with history and reality and I cannot <laughs> do that any longer so yes oh yeah yeah it's it's always a fight. It's always fighting something. But I feel that because critical race theory now has become this like buzz term for just everything that people don't like. So I appreciate yeah. you saying yeah. that some people don't like or don't want to talk about or right. don't think is appropriate for a classroom when like now is the time to learn those things. Now is when youth are first being introduced to all of these ideas and new people and people from other communities and other perspectives. So it is important to have that, yes. that education. Yeah, so just moving on to our last question before I let you go. We're so happy to have you on our board, our board at Independent Shakespeare Company. Can you just talk a little bit about, because you are a relatively new board member, your your journey to choosing to be part of the ISC board and what it's been like so far. Sure. Um, again, I moved here to the West Coast without knowing anybody. I moved here to work at a boarding school up in Ojai, and then I got a job in LA, and I did not have a bunch of friends here. I didn't have a community. And so I really had to build one. And through a writing workshop, I, I met a friend who has these sort of quarterly women's brunches, women who work in different fields, who just care about the community. Sometimes she'll have an elected official running for office. Other times it'll be someone who runs a nonprofit. And through her brunches, I met Pauline. And Pauline in one of the group DMs was like, would anybody like to join the ISC board? And I was oh my goodness and I was like waiting for around to see if any of like the really fancy like powerful people would, would say yes and uh then I was like I would be interested if there's still space and like if you would have me and there was a whole process and I 
had a bunch of really great conversations with Melissa and Nikhil, and then I decided that I would really like to pitch in any way I can. I knew that my school community um, definitely had people who would support, and um, I got to attend uh, the festival, and I just really think that um, in my limited skill set of fundraising and, and arm twisting people to come support that it's been just one of the coolest things that I've been able to get involved in in LA. And everybody, whenever you mention ISB, their eyes light up. Like they either say, <laughs> yes, I've been, and it's so great. Or like, no, I've never been, but I really want to. Um, it's never, you know, you always get an excited reaction. So I think that says something about the role that ISB plays um, within greater LA. I love that. Oh, that makes me feel so good. But it is, it is one of those things where you bring up I see, or the summer festival, if people don't know that we're the ones who do it, it just, right. everyone knows about it. Everyone has some sort of feeling towards it. So yeah. that, that is a really good feeling to share that we all have. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and look forward to spending time with you this summer when we're back in the park and, and all those good things. And definitely keep us posted on ways that we can support your work that you're doing with Narrow and all of that. Thank you so much for the work you do and for being such a bright light in the theater community. You can follow NARAL on Instagram at ProChoiceAmerica and locally at ProChoiceCA and visit their website at ProChoiceAmerica.org. We must protect the bodily autonomy of all Americans, specifically those of us with uteruses, whose access to critical procedures is currently under threat. Thank you so much for listening to this quarter's Community Action Update. To see ISC's social justice initiatives, head to iscla.org justice, where you can also find links and information about NARAL, Christina Wong's upcoming productions, and the Auntie Sewing Squad. Be sure to also follow us on social media at Indie Shakes. Are there individuals, organizations, or causes in our community you want featured on our Community Action Update in September? Email me, Karen-y, at iscla.org, and that's Karen-y, C-A-R-E-N-E, at iscla.org, and I will add it to my list. You can watch ISC's feature film live at the Porpentine, a comedy of errors, on the big screen at the Marina Del Rey Film Festival this Saturday, June 19th, Juneteenth, at 4 p.m., if you can't make it, no worries. You can still stream live at the Porpentine anytime on YouTube, so be sure to like and subscribe for more content. The Griffith Park Free Shakespeare Festival is back with two productions this summer. Join us Wednesdays through Sundays at 7 p.m. in the Dell of the Old Zoo at Griffith Park for magical theater under the stars. Our first production, Night of the Burning Pestle, begins performances July 2nd, and Macbeth, yeah, I said it, I promise I am not recording this from our studio, runs from August 6th to September 4th. Until we reunite in the park, please stay safe, my fellow Angelina.